First Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. We're not in James anymore. Well, good morning. Matt mentioned it's a, and as Ginny reads it, it's a heavier passage, but it's not in conflict with other places in Scripture. And I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that takes God's Word seriously in its entirety. This is a passage I've, it's just fascinated me for a long time. And so I've wanted to preach it, and I finally have the privilege to do that. Uh, Pastor Dave's been working this week, and this coming week, to prepare the Gospel of John, so he'll start next Sunday with that. Um, But in the meantime, we'll we'll have a little transition between James and John. So in this passage, we see a lot of things happen. In this encounter between the Lord and the Philistines, the Israel's rivals. And what's clear is that God's ways are not our ways. And he can accomplish multiple things at one time. And he often uses people to accomplish those things, but he doesn't need to. He can do it all by himself. And this is what we see in this case, that he will do all the work with his own glorious, heavy hands. There's a lot here. There's a lot to understand about Samuel, to set up the background, and that's always the, the downside of a, a standalone sermon. So in order to make sure we understand this passage and make sure we understand how to apply this passage to our own hearts, even help to understand the events of our times, we need the Holy Spirit to help us. So please join me in prayer that we would hear this properly and apply it to us. 
Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather this morning to read and to sing and to hear from you. And all of it, all of your word is profitable. So I ask that you help us to understand this passage and apply it to our hearts. May it spur us on to worship you today and throughout the week. Strengthen our faith. I pray that the places in this sermon that are difficult, you would make clear. The places that might confront or challenge us, that you would give us the ability to submit to your word. Expose our idols, either as individuals or as a church, that we might properly worship you. Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Help us to see a story from 3,000 years ago still has relevance for us today. You are still glorious. You are still at work accomplishing your purposes. And we are still frail sinners who are prone to chasing after false gods. Cause us to return to you and our love for you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you apply this text to our hearts. Strengthen us as a church this morning. May we delight in the glory that this passage has. Fill us with joy. And I ask as well that you help me to clearly explain and preach this passage. We are dependent on your power, not our own. So please do all of these things and more. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I said, it's, it's, it's fun to get to choose your own passage to preach through, but it also brings different challenges than preaching expositionally like Dave is able to do. So we have to, to do some work, maybe some more work, to, to set the context here. Uh, we're not immediately familiar with, with the world of Israel and the Philistines in, in Samuel 5. So we're going to step back and look at, at Samuel as a whole. First and second Samuel are really one book. And we'll look at the context uh, at the beginning of, of Samuel here to really understand what's going on. How did we get to chapter 5? So Samuel is a book that is, is really this development of the kingdom of Israel. Uh, the big theme of, of both when you combine first and second Samuel into one book, it's the story of establishing an earthly king under the rule of the Lord as the ultimate king. So big themes like kings and kingdoms and, and proper worship and authority. And so Israel finds himself in the promised land. So they've, they've wandered through the wilderness. They've made it to the land that, that God has given them. They're in this transitional period, though. The temple hasn't been built yet. Solomon will build that in a couple of generations. And the tabernacle that was the, the portable place of worship is now in a, a semi-permanent uh, dwelling in the city of Shiloh. And so if you remember, within the tabernacle, this kind of this great tent, inside there's the Holy of Holies, and this is where the Ark of the Covenant rested, or in our passage, the Ark of God. This was the place where the high priest would approach the, the, in the Holy of Holies to make atonement through blood sacrifice. And the Lord himself would be present and rest above the ark between the cherubim, and his glory would be present there. Israel also has God's law. 
to, to operate by. It's part of the covenant. And there, within the covenant, God has, has promised, I will, I will be your God, you will be my people, if you obey me, if you follow righteousness. If you do, if you do obey, there will be blessing. If you disobey, there are curses, and the curses will come upon you. These curses, the blessings and curses are found in Leviticus 26 as well as Deuteronomy 28. And if you look at them, you will see incredible blessings, but also very serious curses, some of which we will see this morning. There's a couple key components to um, the more immediate context. So in, in chapter 4, we have this priesthood uh, in Israel kind of known as the house of Eli. So Eli was uh, the father and had two sons who were also priests. Eli was, was in many ways righteous and kind. He was kind to Samuel and Hannah. But he had also allowed his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to be wicked priests. They were adulterous. They were using their positions as priests to essentially steal from the people. And they were profaning worship. And Eli was not only complacent about it, but he was participating in ways within this idolatry. And so the result is that as the priests look one way, the people look like the priests. So the nation is rotten as well, and they profane God in worship. So God sent a prophet to warn Eli that he and his sons and their house would come to an end in one single day. A second piece to the background is the this rival nation, the Philistines. They're Israel's chief foreign enemy in the book of Samuel, and they're mentioned other places in the Old Testament as well. Way back in Genesis 10, the Philistines are mentioned uh, in the line of one of Noah's sons, Ham, the son who was cursed. Ham's line is where almost all of the bad guys in the Old Testament come from. And the Philistines descended from that through another bad guy, Egypt. So they are related to Egypt. And further, they lived within Israel's land. So Israel has taken the land, but they failed to drive out all of God's enemies. And so now the Philistines are still hanging around. They're kind of on the coast of the Mediterranean. And they have five major cities, and and they're only about 30 miles from what, what we know as Jerusalem. So they're right there. And they're a continual thorn in the side of Israel, a reminder of the failure to drive them out. So as we come to chapter 4, Israel and the Philistines go to battle. And to the surprise of Israel, they're defeated. And they lose 4,000 men. And while they're stunned, they shouldn't have been. They should have known the law. They knew the covenant that God had made with them. And they had failed to keep it. God warned them if they, failed, if they failed to be faithful, they would be cursed. And so one of the curses mentioned in the covenant is being routed by their enemies. So Israel gets a taste of the curses, but it gets worse. Israel then comes up with the idea of bringing the Ark of, Co- of the Covenant into battle, which had been done before, but it had to be done with the proper reverence toward the Lord and not presuming upon his holiness or his power. That's not what's happening here. Instead, Israel is treating the ark as some kind of secret weapon. If we just 
walk into battle, march into battle with the ark, we'll win for sure. Well, it didn't work. The Philistines prevailed again. And it's even worse than the first time. This time, 30,000 Israelites are killed. And worst of all, they capture the ark and take it back to Ashdod. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, die in this battle. And then the news reaches Eli, and he dies as well. So things are going from bad to worse for the nation of Israel. The state of Israel at this time is is summed up well at the end of chapter 4, verses 19 through 22. It says, Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The glory has departed. The ark has gone into captivity. It is dark days for God's people. And in some ways it harkens back to another dark time, Israel's time in slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. Only instead of the people in captivity then, or even looking ahead to when they'll be taken into captivity in Babylon, in this instance, God himself is going into captivity. But from Israel's vantage point, everything is is dark. And it's hard to know whether God would do anything. He didn't show up in battle. Would he show up now? But we will see that he will. He will show up in a glorious way. We will see the glory of God at work in in chapter 5. First, he works against a rival god. Then he'll work against a rival nation. And after that, we'll be able to look back and say, what exactly is God doing in his work against his rivals? So let's first look at at the first section, verses 1 through 5. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So the Philistines capture the ark as, as a, a spoil of victory. It's, it's a trophy showing that the Philistines' God has defeated the Israelites and their God. It was, it was a sign that Dagon was greater than Israel's God. So they take the ark, they set it in the house of Dagon right next to their great God. And this is when things get interesting. Look at verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. So here's Dagon, their their chief god. The Philistines would have had other gods that they worshipped as well. But he was the the god of fertility, of of harvest. And when the, the people come in in the morning, this mighty Dagon... He's not only laying on the ground, he's bowing towards the ark of God. 
Well, that's kind of embarrassing for your great, victorious God. But notice the end of of verse 3, what happens. The people have to pick him up and straighten him and make sure he doesn't wobble. Now our God is back where he belongs. Maybe it was just an accident. There was an earthquake or something that bumped him over. But this gives it away. Dagon is an idol who needs help. He is not an almighty, all-powerful God. So Dagon gets set back in his place. Philistines go to bed. We'll see what happens in the morning. But just as things went from bad to worse for Israel in their battle, things escalate quickly with Dagon as well. The next morning, Dagon is again bowing down to the ark. Now his head and his hands are cut off. What began as a contest between these two rival gods is a rout. God has utterly embarrassed Dagon. Dagon has no head. He can't think or know. His wooden or stone hands have been severed. He has no power. Dagon the mighty is impotent. Now God will not be mocked, but he will mock his rivals. God mocks his rivals to show how foolish it is to trust in a God like Dagon, a false God. Isaiah 44 gives this picture of the folly of idolatry. It describes a a carpenter who, who cuts down a tree and he shapes it, and he planes it, and takes his time to craft an idol. And then from the same tree, he takes fire, and he cooks food over it, and he heats himself. There's no difference between the wood used for fire and wood used for his deity. An idol is created. There's nothing transcendent like the true and living God. And this This section shows us that there is no other God. He has no rivals. Isaiah 44 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. The contrast between the living and active God and this created statue Dagon is stark. Now we can look at Dagon, made of wood and stone, maybe covered in gold, and we think, I don't do that. I I don't have a a shrine in my house. I don't have a shrine down the block that I, I offer sacrifices to. But we we do plenty of bowing. John Calvin famously said that man's nature is a factory of idols. Our idols are many, and any good thing that becomes all important can become an idol. So let me give one example. How do you use your phone? Imagine someone from Samuel's time coming to a public place in our world, the airport or a restaurant or wherever it would be. What would they think? All these individuals, even people within a a family, all looking at their own phones. We all are tempted to bow to the blue glow. How do you use your phone? It might not be the god of fertility or agriculture, but how do we use them? For some of us, it might be distraction. Just getting away from our actual responsibilities and important things that we don't want to deal with. 
The infinite scroll can trap us for a long time. We use them for comfort. We get into a habit of simply checking our phones and not knowing why. It's almost superstitious. Again, it can keep us from caring about real things because we have cheap and abundant entertainment. It can make us dull. We can use them for likes and favorites. We can seek the approval of men. And suddenly we find ourselves conspiring. How can I get more likes, more favorites, more approval? We can be so focused on that future post, we fail to enjoy the moment in real time. We can be enslaved to our employers, believing we have to stay connected and respond quickly. Or the the source of all knowledge and wisdom in our hands. We aren't that different from the Philistines or the Israelites. Our idols might be more sophisticated, but they're still idols. And we are fools chasing after them. Again, from Isaiah 44, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Idols are nothing. There is no profit. Don't be put to shame by trusting in idols. We will all have to do work to discover our particular idols. Maybe it's something related to our phone. Maybe it's something else. Let's help one another. And recognize the futility of it. Recognize the fleeting pleasures and that they are creations and not the creator. Recognize what our idols promise and then recognize and remember that they will disappoint. Not only is God the true God, the living God, our God does not need help from anyone. So as we continue our story we'll see where God continues his march through the Philistines. He's humiliated their God, and now he'll humiliate the people. In an ironic turn, Dagon, the Almighty God, now has no hands. But the true God of Israel, who doesn't actually have hands, is shown using his hand against the Philistines. And it's a heavy hand. The Hebrew word for heavy is the same word for glory. So while it's a heavy hand of judgment against these people, it's also the glorious work of God that he alone can do. And remember that Ichabod symbolized that the glory had departed. Ichabod means glory has departed. But that didn't mean that the glory had disappeared or departed forever. God's heavy hand His glorious hand is at work to subdue all of his rivals and restore right worship among his people. The similarities between our passage and the Exodus account are also very strong. Through a mighty hand, God worked signs and wonders to deliver his people from Pharaoh. And now he will will work to deliver his ark back to Israel. And he does this by sending plagues upon the Philistines. And once again, the plagues go from bad to worse for the people. 
God has already finished Dagon, just like the gods of Egypt were humiliated by darkness and frogs and blood. And now God sends a plague on the skin of the people. Instead of boils in Egypt, it's tumors that the Philistines suffer from. And the plague start in Ashdod, but the people then send the ark to another Philistine town in Gath. People might be thinking, maybe if we just move the ark away, that will get rid of the plagues. It's a, it's a rational solution, but Gath is just as bad. It doesn't tell us in our passage, but in, in chapter 6, verse 4, looking back on what's happened in Gath, it says that there were plagues of, of famine. There were mice that ravaged the land. So the plagues are increasing, starting from tumors to plagues, plagues on the people to plagues on the land. Then the people try and move it to a third city. But the people of Ekron refuse. They, they see what's happening, but it's too late. The plagues still reach Ekron, and now they're including death. And the ones who don't die are terrorized and afflicted by the other plagues. And a cry goes out to heaven, just like in Egypt. And the Philistines recognize that the ark and the Lord's presence are causing all the destruction. Just like in Exodus, God makes it clear that he alone is God. There are no other rivals. There are no other nations that can compare to, his God, to this God and his glory. Maybe you can follow why a false god like Dagon would be destroyed. But why would God destroy a nation, you might be asking? Well, it's because they don't honor the true God. They're defiled and wicked. Also, they're harming God's people. And God is holy and cannot be in the presence of wickedness. And it's only in his mercy that any of us are not consumed for our own wickedness. So God has taken out the rival God. He's taken out the rival nation. How do we understand this? What is, what is the purpose of this? Why exactly is God going to the trouble to allow Israel to suffer defeat, allow the ark to go into captivity, only to ruin the Philistines? Psalm 78 actually looks back on this story and, and helps us interpret it. Verses 60 through 66 it says, he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind. So the, this tabernacle, he has left that. And delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. So he's, he's punishing Israel, his people. Fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song. It's rough. It's rough for Israel. Their priests fell by the sword. Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke, as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. So he's dealt with Israel. He goes into captivity, and then he deals with the Philistines. And this was all God's doing. Who else but our Almighty God can do so many glorious things at once. He wasn't defeated. He wasn't pulled into captivity. He chose to go into captivity in order to humble his people by using 
the Philistines as his tool to humble Israel. Then he deals with the enemies, not only to punish them, but also to show his glory and warn us all, all in one glorious movement. God can use means to accomplish his purpose, purposes, but sometimes he takes matters into his own hands. So again, he's, he's doing multiple things at once. Israel is unfaithful to the covenant, so he disciplines them to correct them. He mocks false gods by bringing them low. He judges and punishes his enemies by sending plagues. And he will also restore his people and grant mercy. The ark, if you follow the story further, the ark returns to Israel. And the people of Philistia turn away from their wickedness and send an offering and gold and the ark. And the plagues are, are staved. And he can also warn and instruct his people. This story is for our benefit. It's warning us to flee idolatry. It's a warning to offer right worship and to trust the Lord to fight for us. All of these things, all at the same time. So another question. How can we avoid the judgment of God? How do we avoid the fate of Dagon and the Philistines? The answer is to worship the Lord, whose hand is mighty. The one who crushed the head of the serpent through his death. Who can accomplish multiple things through one act. The one who is holy and cannot stand the sight of sin and rebellion. So the call is to turn to this holy and glorious God in faith and in repentance. So I want to say a little bit more about who this Lord is, who is worthy of worship, in order that we would want to worship him more. The Bible describes this bigger story about God defeating his rivals. Dagon losing his head isn't merely about his knowledge or him representing the Philistines alone. It's part of the story of God defeating all of his enemies and crushing their heads. From the promise in the garden that the serpent's head would be crushed, God's enemies are in the line of that serpent. So Dagon is crushed. Later in Samuel, you'll see the famous story of David and Goliath. Now, instead of a battle between gods, it's a battle of two men representing their nations. And the Lord's anointed, David, defeats the Philistine's secret weapon, Goliath of Gath. Goliath falls on his face, bowing to David. And then David takes his head as a trophy and brings it back to Jerusalem. There are others along this story, but we can fast forward to 30 AD. We have another battle between rivals. The anointed God-man who went up to Jerusalem and was crucified outside the city on a hill called Golgotha. And without weapons or any fight at all, he bore the wrath of the Father. He bore the covenant curses for us, the covenant breakers, the idolaters who have offered profane worship. He died for us. And he was buried. And at this point, it looks like the bad guys have won. Some were basically asking, has the glory departed? But Jesus Christ rose again. 
Christ rose from the dead to defeat sin and death. Colossians 2, 14 through 15 says that at the cross, Jesus canceled our spiritual debt by nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus is mocking his enemies. Ha ha, death has no sting. Sin has been defeated through Christ. And that will be true of all of Christ's enemies. He will continue establishing his kingdom. Philippians 2 tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven and that there will be a time when all the earth will bow like Dagon before his rule. Everyone will acknowledge the true king, either in worship or in judgment. Now, with all of this heaviness and destruction, there might be another question. Isn't Jesus about love and mercy and grace, kindness? Absolutely, he is. But we don't want to pit his attributes against one another. He's the same God who defeated Dagon, who is jealous for his glory, a glory he will not share. Yes, Jesus is gentle and lowly, but that is only part of his character. He is also a conquering king who will judge and destroy his enemies. And how he does that is different than other human rulers or kings as well. It's not rash or arbitrary, but based on God's holy standard. And this is a theme that runs through the Bible. Read the Psalms sometime and notice how frequently this theme of triumphing over enemies or people calling out to ask that God would crush the enemies. See how often that comes up. And that theme doesn't stop in the Old Testament. It runs all the way to Revelation. All Christians believe this. We will differ on the timing, things like that, but all Christians believe and we should all long for the day when all is put right by Christ. Jesus is still crushing idols, still sending plagues in judgment. He removed Herod in Acts. He destroyed the temple in 70 AD. The Roman Empire fell. We've spent eight months in Berea talking about the last 2,000 years of history and how God has worked through that. Sometimes in judgment, sometimes in mercy. And it's not always easy to discern God's purposes in our current day. We don't have a, a psalm like Psalm 78 to explain exactly what God's intentions are. But we do have the story of Scripture and God's law to inform the things that we see in our day. We can see lots of parallels between the days of Samuel and our days. We have tyrants acting like gods. We have increasing lawlessness. There's theft at almost every level of society, just like there was in Israel. We have people who have no regard for children or protecting children. We have a nation that in large part hates God. and is trying in vain to exist apart from God and his righteousness. We have lots of people thinking there are no consequences to their actions. We even have many churches in our day that can look like the house of Eli. Pastors who are complacent grifters with no regard for the glory of the Lord like Hophni and Phinehas. And sadly, many of those churches reflect their pastors. But we can see that through the story of Scripture that God is able to do multiple things at once. So is he judging our society? Is he vanquishing his foes? Is he warning us and teaching us? And the answer is yes, 
He's doing all of those things. So the call for us is to be holy. We start with us as individuals. Kill your idols. Raise godly families. As a church, let's pursue holiness. And be sure that we are worshiping our holy God with fear and trembling. And we should pray. We should pray for our country. That God would either grant repentance to people or destroy his rivals. And that might mean difficulty for God's faithful people. We may have to endure suffering as God works. But God is at work and will be faithful to his people. He doesn't need our help necessarily. And no false idol or rebellious nation will ultimately stand in the end. Christ will reign above all else. There's one true God, the triune God of the universe, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is holy, he is glorious, and he is actively at work putting all enemies under his feet. He often acts through us to accomplish his purposes, but he doesn't need to. And he doesn't need weapons or worldly power. He can vanquish his foes without any help. He worked in Israel. He worked through the early church. And he is working today. Our God will establish his perfect rule and defeat all enemies in his path. Until at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.